It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we discuss the latest news from across the battlefront, focusing on the Donbass, and we ask whether there are some positives Ukraine can take from the situation. And I discover how a team of Ukrainians' passion for whiskey is being used to raise money for the army. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 27th of May, day 93. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team. I started by asking Dom and Venetia for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been focused on the Donbass region, as uh, as expected. Still, a lot of hard fighting going on in that in that pocket around Severodonetsk. Not a huge amount of change to the to the front lines there. Russia still uh, pushing west with some very very limited success, but it but it is it is moving forward. It is advancing. Yet to close the pocket, and uh, Ukrainian forces are still able to to be re- reinforced through the through the the main roads in that area. Uh, you may remember Roland, our colleague Roland Oliphant, was was who came to us live yesterday. He was talking about the the exact geography of the area. So it, it is tricky to completely cut off any of those reinforcing um, routes. But but uh, that that does seem to be the way that Russian forces are going. In fact, Roland's got a got a, an article online now that's that's live. It's it's in front of the paywall. If anybody wants to catch up with what Roland's saying, it's very very interesting there. But um, but still a lot of a lot of hard fighting going on there. There was a Pentagon briefing last night. I just just to uh, just to bring everyone up to up to speed in terms of the weapons supplies because Ukraine are, are calling for much heavier weapons to go in, and the Pentagon spokesman was uh, was was giving some details on that. So just to bring everyone up to up to speed, so the so the US have supplied more than eighty five of the hundred and eight promised M triple seven howitzers, these big one five five millimeter howitzers, and of the two hundred eight thousand rounds of ammunition. That's been promised. They've supplied 190,000. So a huge amount of uh, ammunition in there, and it looks like the the M777s are are all virtually virtually all in country. 
Um, and the Pentagon spokesman said that these are, they're not hanging around in, in warehouses and storage facilities and training facilities. The training's been done outside the country. These, uh, these weapons, when they go into the country, into Ukraine, are pushed forward straight away. So they are, they are there in, in some numbers and, uh, and up the front. It also said that nine of the 11 MI17, the big, the big transport aircraft, the, the, the helicopters, the derivative of the MI8, the HIP, um, are in, in theatre. The, the additional two will be either later in June or early July. And finally, said uh, of the, the Switchblade 300s, these loitering munitions, said 230 have been gifted to Ukraine. And that makes 73% of the of the total the total offer from the from the US. Now, you know, I'm gonna have to take my shoes and socks off to work it out, but I don't know what 200, 220 being 73%, you know, you're looking at about an extra extra 50 or so on top of that. But but the maths 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 genius out there will be able to work work that out exactly. But you know, a lot of switchblade munitions, a lot of munitions in total. And also said that 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 Russia has 110 battalion tactical groups left in Russia, in Ukraine. The majority of them, they're, they're pretty evenly spread out across the country. But the but the biggest proportion is in the centre in this in this fight for the for the Donbass. But I'll I'll take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. Venetia, what else should we be paying attention to today? Yeah, well, I think as Dom says, it's it's really still all about the Donbass. That's where the active front is at the moment. Um, we've seen still lots of really fierce fighting and the Ukrainians basically copping to the fact that it's not going as well for them as the war has gone in other areas. Um, and, and Dom wrote a very interesting piece, which he can tell you about shortly, about why that's actually a good thing that they're admitting some of this stuff. But essentially, we had, you know, Ukrainian general staff yesterday saying that they might have to retreat in some areas, that it's about winning the war, not the battle. Um, that, you know, they're being pushed back around these key towns that we've been following, Lashansk and Severodonetsk. We also had Zelensky saying in his nightly address that Russia is determined to reduce these cities to ashes and that it wants to make the Donbass un- uninhabited. So really this sense that there's quite a quite apocalyptic fighting going on in this eastern region, which we've sort of took our eyes off a bit during much of the beginning of the war. You know, it was already controlled or sort of fought over um, after since 2014 and parts of it were already controlled by Russian separatists. You know, it really felt like the biggest gains for Russia were to be made around Kiev or Kharkiv or in the south of Mariupol. Um, but obviously we've seen them retreat from around Kiev and Kharkiv. They, the Russians have taken Mariupol and now they're trying to consolidate these the, the sort of separatist gains in the Donbass. And that might be what Russia may eventually end up settling for. That might be the big victory that they're hoping to get out of this war. So it's definitely one to, to watch closely. And um, it's, yeah, it's interesting that the Ukrainians are being pushed back. Russia is definitely throwing everything that it has now at this um, bit of fighting. We've seen sort of soldiers redeployed from Mariupol, which isn't a great sign because these soldiers are likely to be very tired. Um, and we've also heard in an MOD briefing this morning, and again, Dom can tell you a bit more about this in a second, that Russia Russia has been sending in T-62 tanks, very, very old tanks, 50-something-year-old tanks, um, into the battle in the Donbass, which shows that perhaps their war cupboard is looking increasingly bare. Thanks, Venetia. Well, Dom, do you want to come in on that? What did the MOD say, to, say today? Well, I mean, rather delightfully, the MOD just said what we were, we've been discussing over the last few days, these these T-62 tanks, which, as Venetia says, designed... Uh, well, designed in the fifties, actually, and in, in service, brought in service through the sixties up to um, up to the T seventy two. The T seventy two took over from from it as the sort of mainstay of of the then Soviet Union, now Russia's tank force. But 
the, the Russia has thousands of T-62 in storage. Some of that storage is, is good undercover um, when it's maintained. And some storage is just out in the open, so completely exposed to, to the elements. And you know, it, it, so it's not going to survive well there. So a number of points about this. Firstly, not great from a Ukrainian point of view that, that Russia has got this, this huge backlog of um, or this, this huge reserve of tanks that it can, it can draw upon. However, what state are they likely to be in? Not great if a lot of them have been left out in the elements for for decades. Um, how many spare parts are there? I don't know if if the Russian supply system still makes a you know, an axle and a and a track grouser spud and all the rest of it for uh, for a T sixty two tank. So how supportable are they? And also T sixty two a one one five millimeter caliber. That's the the caliber. That's the width of the of the round. So the obviously the length of it is is longer than that. But that that's the width. 115 is, you know, they're going to make your eyes water if one of those lands, lands at your feet. But the point is that the rest of the Russian tanks, the 72s, the 80s and the 90s, are 125mm calibre. Not not massively bigger. It all, it all matters, but they're not, not hugely bigger. But but think about the logistic burden. If you are, as we've already seen, sorry, the, the logistic chain for Russia has been stretched. Ukraine have been very, very good at being able to hit those those logistic um, corridors hit the fuel, hit the ammunition, hit the all the other things that you need to keep a, a military force going. So it, it's under strain. They, they've lost hundreds of, of trucks, just the bog standard trucks to carry all this stuff around. Russia's lost lost loads of them. So just just moving this stuff about is is problematic. And if you then say to the logistician, right, well, here's a completely different nature of equipment, different caliber ammunition, old spare parts. You can't sort of cannibalize much of the stuff from a T-72, 80 or 90 for a T-62, it's just a, log- a logistician's nightmare to say, oh, those tanks over there or those tanks that were there yesterday, they need all this stuff. The T-62s over there need some of this other stuff. But in the fog of war and with battle, everything moves about a bit and you kind of lose track of what's where. It's a nightmare. So if you have what's called mixed fleets, so different types of generally the same the same uh, piece of equipment. So if you have, you know, it'd be nice if all the tanks were the same and it doesn't matter where, where all the spare track wheels go and, and all the rest of it and the running gear and blah, 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 whatever else. But if you, if you've got to then try and try and cater for a completely different nature of equipment, it's just, it's just a nightmare. So, so yes, it is significant that, um, that Russia are able to lean on all these, uh, all these extra tanks. Got to ask the question why they're having to reach back for these 62s. It's because they are losing so many other vehicles, all the, all the more modern tanks on the battlefield. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, they're, they're, they're old. They're probably not very well supported. You, it might be, I, not, not my place to say, but it might be a waste of a, of a javelin or an N law to try and, um, kill a T-62. I would have thought some of the older anti-tank munitions, maybe even an RPG, the rocket, rocket propelled grenade would, um, would have a, a serious impact on these things. So, you know, they're very old, very old pieces of equipment. And as we mentioned in the last couple of days, Who's who's going to be crewing them? Because generally, if you knock out a tank with one of these modern anti-tank missiles, you know the crew are dead. There's there's no one no one getting out of it unless the thing's broken down and the crew have run off. But the majority of the, the tanks they've lost have been destroyed, and that will include the crew. So the crews of these new T sixty two are going to be uh, younger, new, might be conscripts. How good are they? How much are they? How much do they know their vehicle? Let alone how to fight the battle alongside everything else. So, yep. Yeah. T sixty two is going into going into the fight probably in the southern area. That was the MOD, uh, British MOD uh, Defence Intelligence Assessment going into the uh, into the southern region, so north of Crimea, 
along the coast that that area there that, that Russia has taken, so from sort of Kazan up to uh, Mariupol and through into the Donbass. Um, that's probably where the T-62s are going. They might be used for rear, rear area security to free up other tanks to go forward. Um, so, you know, it's not, I'm not saying just because T-62s are going in, they're all going to be knocked out very quickly. Um, that war doesn't work that way. It's never, never so clear. But in and of itself, it, it's, it's not, an, not a, um, an unalloyed win for Russia on that one. Thanks, Tom. Um, Venetia, I know I, I realise we don't have you for very long. Um, what other updates do you think our listeners should be aware of? And would you like to talk a little bit about what um, Roland Oliphant, our correspondent out in the Donbass, has found in his latest dispatch? Talking more about the fighting going on in these these key cities and the sort of road out to Kramatorsk and the the the, fa- the, the battle for these very last stretches of land in the Donbass, which is you know a lot of what we've been talking about this week, and the listeners will be increasingly familiar with it. But it's a very good story talking about from very personal perspective. Um, you know, getting into the dugout with Ukrainian soldiers and how they're listening out for the sounds of shells and that they increasingly know, not through any kind of use of fancy technology, but just by using their ears and their spider sensors, um, whether a shell is is coming towards them, whether it's coming near, whether it was a purposeful hit or or not. Um, Roland's obviously been on the ground for us. Um, This is his second time he's being deployed out to Ukraine for us and his writing is absolutely fantastic. So I would definitely recommend all of our listeners go and read that as Dom said it's on our front page at the moment and free to read one other thing I wanted to talk about was um, this story about more than 100 guards in Russia having their sacking confirmed by Russian court that sounds a bit technical but we've been hearing about lots of cases of soldiers or national guards in Russia refusing to go and fight in Ukraine saying we're not full-blown Russian army soldiers. We're in the National Guard, which is a kind of domestic um, service. And it's not our job to go and fight in Ukraine. Some of them have hired lawyers to try and press their case. um, And some have just been sacked and have tried to appeal the sacking. Um, Yesterday was the first time that we heard from a sort of official Russian state source, if you like, that these cases are going on. We've heard previously from, you know, activist groups, from lawyers on social media. Um, But this case confirmed that 115 National Guards are being sacked for refusing to fight in Ukraine. And that's pretty extraordinary. The, The Russian state has very much tried to pretend that everyone is on board with what they call their special military operation. Um, that, you know, people are coming back intact and that there's no dissent over the war at all. Um, But this really goes to show that even people who, you know, clearly are relatively patriotic and serve for state institutions, which the National Guard has won, but they don't agree with the war enough to go and fight in it, to lay their life on the line for it. So I think that's a pretty significant story and part of the sort of resistance in Russia theme that we've been following throughout the war. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Venetia. Um, Mutaz Ahmed, can we bring you in here? Um, you've been listening to these updates. What's your take on it? What's the latest from what, from what you're seeing? Yeah, I, I think for, for many sort of, uh, of course, Venetia and Dom are following this daily. And, and so this won't be new to them. But, you know, the, the, this this new theme in, in the war of Russia making pretty solid advances in the Donbass has come as a jolt to a lot of uh, European capitals. Um, uh, for much of the war, uh, Western leaders and Western policymakers have had the comfort of knowing that the Ukrainians were succeeding and not just defending themselves, but pushing back uh, and even pushing back old boundaries. Um, and that sort of that that comfort 
plastered over any sort of divisions over strategy between the EU and America or within NATO. Uh, but it's, it's, it's being peeled back now um, because uh, the war is evolving, especially in the Donbass, and not in Ukraine's favour. Um, and so all these questions about Germany not sending as many weapons as other European countries, about Macron speaking the language of concessions and con conciliation, all these tensions are coming back to the fore uh, with with a higher ferocity. Um, and and now it, 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 there is a, a new sort of urgency when it comes to decisions about how to help Ukraine. So you've got the United States and and, and today, Boris Johnson talking about sending multiple rocket launch systems and, and increasingly offensive weapons um, and sending them quickly while uh, uh, Germany's uh, 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 Chancellor Schultz and, um, and Macron continue to sort of be the laggards. And, and, and we saw Schultz criticised over his speeches at, at Davos this week. So effectively what this new development has done is to is to is to make the disagreements within the western alliance more pertinent uh, and i think you'll see over the coming days they'll be they, they will become more uh, explicit um and amongst commentators they will become angrier um uh, you'll see much angrier calls for for germany and france to do more and indeed for britain and america to to do even more than than they already have Thanks, Mutaz. Um, just one last thing from Venetia. Um, two more Russian servicemen have uh, gone on trial um, in, in Ukraine. Can you tell us about this? What, what are they being tried with? Um, what, what's happening? Yes, yeah, so we've seen a sort of number of trials of Russian citizens in Ukraine related to crimes that they've committed during the war. I know we spoke um, last week, maybe the week before, about the first one, about this guy who shot an unarmed civilian who was cycling along on a bicycle on his way home, and he shot, he just put his, pointed his gun out the window and, and shot him dead after being told to by his commander. Um, there are more trials going on. The latest is these two men who were on trial for shelling um, shelling a, a town in the Kharkiv region um, and they've they've um, acknowledged that they, they were part of an artillery unit that was firing at this this town um, and they're now facing up to 12 years in jail. Um, defence lawyers argued that they should be given leniency because they were just following orders and this sort of tucks back into this issue that I know we spoke about after the first trial and is following orders enough um, of a defence um, this is just the sort of latest in a number of trials that will be happening in Ukraine. Um, and uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens and, and whether they start to lose momentum or what, how Russia reacts as well. Thank you very much, uh, Venetia. Um, Tom Nichols, you've written some analysis for The Telegraph today. You write that there's been an outbreak of bad news from Ukraine in recent days. I mean, if our listeners listen to us daily, listen to the podcast, they'll, they'll realise that. Um, but you, you write that this is to be welcomed. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the, the honesty and the, the moral core that is required to see any military action through, through the long haul. So... I'm pointing to the, the comments coming out from President Zelensky and his senior senior advisers, such as they're saying saying we are we are barely afloat in the Donbass, and uh, um, President Zelensky is is talking about the the annihilation and the genocide. He's used the word genocide of the of the region. I mean, these are these are very very evocative and powerful terms, and in a way, I th I, I think I 
it is it is to be applauded this this level of honesty if you have an undiluted diet of good news and victories not only to, to does it on the one hand i think it can allow a level of complacency to to creep in both domestically and also internationally there there will be there are already calls for people people saying why are we supplying weapons and money to ukraine when we've got our own problems on on our own doorstep so the the more if if there was this narrative of this, well, you know, the Russians are being rolled up. It's only a matter of time before it's all to goes to negotiations and and it's all over. Then there'll be greater calls for well, we don't need to spend any more money. We don't need to spend more uh, gifting weapons to to Ukraine. So I think I think you could undermine your case by trying to be trying to be um, unrelentingly positive. And secondly, it it just undermines the the speaker. If you look at how Vladimir Putin is using strategic communications. Then I mean, is either they're either sort of not saying anything, um, and just 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 deny or, or or denying the the facts that are that are able to creep into Russia through the internet and what have you, um, or or they're just putting out putting out really great distortions of the truth. So you just don't unless you unless you've absolutely been hardwired to believe what the uh, what the leadership is saying. You just you just don't believe anything that's coming out of the Kremlin, and that and that itself is a problem. And I just I just contrast this with what we experienced in in this country through Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm saying how there was there was a, a lot of a lot of good news basically, um, certainly fed to us in in the military. It was all gorgeous on the on the cusp on the cusp of victory or one last push. And as I, as I've written today, you know, one of the last comments that were ringing in my very uh, very very doubting ears as I left for Afghanistan was. Um, uh, there are uh, grounds for cautious optimism. It's like, well, bloody hell! I mean, I don't know what the grounds were, and I hope the caution was 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 quite extreme. But yeah, if you if you just say everything's going fine, it's all going fine. Not only do you, it just sort of saps the will to to believe what what you're being fed, but also when you do have a a setback, then you it, it can absolutely rock you to the to the core. And so I think I think President Zelensky and his team have been very astute here to prepare their country and the international community for setbacks. I mean, it's war, right? They're up against Russia. We've, we've talked about the many, many problems Russia have had, but, but I mean, they are achieving some measure of success and where, uh, and where they're not succeeding, they are causing a huge amount of damage and, and, and carnage around the country. So they, they're a hugely powerful organization, even if they're not achieving many or any of their big war aims. And so there will be setbacks in this, in this war. Um, however, it's going to turn out, and it, and it's right to prepare the the citizens for the long term. It's right to be honest with your soldiers if you want them to fight for, you know, maybe years, if you know, certainly not months. Um, and so I think this is fairly clever communication. If you think about the British experience in the Second World War, firstly, um, Dunkirk, we it, many people sort of saw that as oh, that's a you know, fantastic, great moment, almost a battle honour. So no, that was a, that was a defeat. And and Churchill was right when when he said he said yeah, thank, thanks for the deliverance. We should be thankful for the deliverance from Dunkirk. But um, you know, vi- victories are not made of glorious retreats. And then uh, in 1942, when uh, the Allies finally finally prevailed over the, the the Germans and the Axis forces in North Africa. Um, again, it was sort of lauded as hey, a, a massive victory, and and it was okay. You got to you got to have a, you know, a brief moment for a pat on the back. But again, Churchill was just there to dampen things down a little bit, and he said, "Look, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning." So there's some very very clever ways of of being able to say, "Yep, yeah, you've done a good job, but 
we're in this for the long haul. And I think it's um, just as much as you should celebrate your successes, you need to be honest with your with your people and your your fighters and the international community when things are not going that well, if you want to maintain credibility. And I think the one thing that, that President Zelensky and his team have been very good at throughout this whole war is is that level of credibility. You know who he is. There's there's there doesn't seem to be a lot of gloss, not a lot of spin. I mean he's you know he's cutting around in his t shirts and, and what have you and he's he's talking to you, he's talking to us as a as a as a just just, just you know, another, a Ukrainian citizen who happens to be president rather than the other way around. Very different very different comms to uh, to what we see from the from the Kremlin. So yes, this is bad news. We've 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 talked about it at length. Um I mean the Severodonetsk pocket is not closed yet. We should we should absolutely reiterate that it, this is not this is not yet a defeat but if you think about what russia tried to do three months ago there was going to be this lightning advance 72 hours kiev overtaken job done then apparently it all became the donbass and there was going to be this sweeping move south of kharkiv north of mariupol and it'll all be sewn up fairly quickly and now we're talking about a very small pocket in eastern ukraine i mean it, it, it's it's valuable and there are people being killed in there right now so we we now, we shouldn't be too glib about it. We shouldn't be glib at all about it. But this is a, this is a small. This looks like it's going to be a small tactical victory for Russia. They've not really been able to knit those victories together to make any kind of operational advance or anything on a, on a grand strategic scale. So, yeah, we should be be cautious about what this actually means. Um, and I think it's been very very clever comms from the Ukrainian side to prepare their population for for a, a likely setback. Thank you very much, Dom. Um, Mutas, do you want to come in on that? Um, as somebody, I think it was interesting earlier when you said, you know, we've been covering this daily, you've been standing a little bit further away. What what, what do you take from Dom's analysis there? Um, I, I think it's, he's he's right. We had Charles Moore write a few days ago about the need to be uh, need for Ukraine to be more transparent about casualties. And, and it's understandable when uh, governments are leading countries uh, in, in a state of war, that they might want to withhold some information to keep morale high, uh, but morale is is high in Ukraine to such an extent that that, that the government in Kiev has has more leeway to sort of to be more transparent. And by being transparent, it it it, it, it appears more virtuous. Um, so it's also a very smart sort of communications move. But it, I, I I think it reflects. You know, the, the the big thing for me is that Russia is now making progress in uh, the Donbass, and there is the very real possibility that at some point in coming weeks, Putin will have an opportunity to declare some sort of victory, whether it be by taking the 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 district of Luhansk or or whatever it may be. There there is an opportunity there, and so the, this messaging from uh, Zelensky reflects that that this is a crunch point right it 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 might be possible to turn it round but only if the west sort of doubles down and 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 sends lots and lots of equipment um that that's just the reality um and you know he he made a very interesting point this week zelensky about brute force if putin is allowed to declare any sort of victory it will be a victory for brute force um and any victory for brute force becomes an incentive for brute force in the future. So there is a there is a very real interest for the West to prevent any kind of victory for Putin, um, which is why um, uh, you see that this 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 um, not panic but renewed urgency from 
London and Washington to make sure he doesn't get that victory. Um, I, I'm not sure how possible it is now to prevent Russia from encircling uh, certain cities in, in the Donbass. But um, what we can see is this is this this renewed effort from the West. Um, hopefully, this time bringing along Germany and France much more closely uh, than before. Mutas, on the comment desk, you, you, you're talking to politicians, uh, policymakers all the time. Um, what's the latest from them? What's the feeling you get about how the British establishment are viewing the war? Well, there, there's some um, distraction at the moment. Um, understandable distraction over Partygate. So it, it hasn't been at the forefront of the agenda, I'm afraid, over the last couple of weeks. Um, but But we're seeing it in Westminster a lot now through the, the consequences, right? There's a lot of thought going into the food crisis, the international food crisis, and there's a hell of a lot of thought going into inflation um, and a lot of concern about how the Ukraine war, how a prolonged war will will, in, will affect inflation in the UK. And that, in 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 some sense, has reduced the appetite uh, for any kind of war. Um, uh, and, you know, this was entirely predictable, um, but as the consequences of war uh, in Europe plays out in the oil markets and and in our inflation rate and in in our food prices, um, the, the 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 interest is going to move away from what happens on the battlefield day to day to the broader sort of image, and and that lends itself to talk of um, negotiations and so on. Um, but there, there is still a very solid commitment to you know making sure putin doesn't win um there's a there's a sort of cast iron feeling especially in westminster that that this is almost a, a moral project you know that the uk has to do everything it can you know regardless of the price we're currently paying and that's regrettable but you know there's an acknowledgement that we're paying a price uh, the british people are that the uk still has to do everything it can to 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 help defend ukraine um, and there's increasing frustration, I'd say, with comments emanating from people like uh, Henry Kissinger at Davos about um, about trading um, uh, territory um, uh, and, and the sort of language emanating from the Elysee, um, publicly sort of projecting what kind of, you know, how the negotiations might play out. You know, everyone knows this, this will likely end in a settlement but but there's there's still this horror in Westminster at Western leaders sort of projecting beforehand how it should go because there's a, there's a feeling that 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 reduces um, uh, Ukraine's hand it reduces their leverage um, if if it's predictable what what the West will what what kind of price that the, the West is willing to pay. Thanks, Mutes. Dom, I know you wanted to come in on a few of those things. Well, I was just going to make the point. Mutes raised the the suggestion that after this um, anticipated victory in in the, this portion of the Donbass, that that Putin might then seek to go into negotiations with a, with a strong hand. I mean that that is entirely possible. But we should also look at uh, look at what happened before when Russian forces were ejected from the north of the country, and they then said, "Oh, well, actually, the main objective all along has been the Donbass, so we're going to go around there." And it was all it was all a feint uh, to to Kiev. Um, we never actually we were never that serious. I don't think many people believe that, but what the analysis was at the time was that, that f- to have any meaningful full impact, the, the forces that came out of the north of the country then needed about about five or six weeks of reconstitution, which, as we've 
discussed many times is is not only resting your 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 people and your equipment fixing your people and equipment but also reorganizing your structures for for the fight that you've that's revealed itself to you um and and we were questioning whether or not there would be this this five or six week period before things really got going in the Donbass, or whether Russia would just sort of rush in and, and try and try and gain a victory. At the time, we were talking about maybe they they want a victory before the May the ninth Victory Day parade, um, and they did. They ru- they rushed in and they 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 got they got badly mauled in the last few weeks, certainly to the north and and to the northeast of Kharkiv, um, and it's only been in the last couple of weeks, which is about the timescale that that people were saying for a proper reconstituted force to go in that's when russia has been able to start knitting together these uh, these small tactical successes combined with this you may remember these reports that um that putin and gerasimov valery gerasimov the the head of the entire russian armed forces had been had been meddling down the chain of command had been sort of tactically directing uh, un- uh, groupings down to around about brigade level. We were told by Western officials that it was down to the the level that would normally be expected a colonel or, or brigadier to to operate at. So, you know, a very very actually in the grand scheme of things, quite low down the uh, the chain of command. And I just wonder if there is if there is a victory here in the in the in the eastern eastern Donbass or in the Luhansk Oblast of the Donbass for for Russia, whether or not the military will turn around and say. Right, we now need to pause, to take breath, to have another few weeks to to properly reconstitute before pushing on either either north back to Kharkiv or uh, or try and continue south. Maybe you know, there's this, this vaunted aim to get through to Odessa, or just keep going west to the Dnieper River. And I just wonder if at that point we'll see we'll see this uh, this push again from uh, supposedly from from the Kremlin and say no no go straight away push west. In which case they will become rapidly unstuck again. So I think we'll if there is this victory. In the Donbass, uh, we will see very quickly whether Russia just stick to that that old model of uh, just keep going, just just push on, and uh, and they will lose an awful lot of troops doing that, or whether or not General Dvornikov, the new or the, the Russian commander put in charge of the overall theatre, he was he was put in place after the forces were ejected from the from the north. Um, whether or not he's able to wield any any influence to say no no I need I need I need a proper three or four weeks to get my army ready to go. Again, so there will be, um, or there should be a pause if Russia is successful in the in the next in the next week or so, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not that is that is the case, whether or not that transitions into some calls for negotiations, or whether they ju- they just keep going and show yet again that they they didn't learn from their from their previous um, previous experience. Tom, can I ask um, quickly? We've heard a lot about what the Ukrainians have been asking for and. Uh, there's, as as we've discussed, a lot of urgency now in their calls for more um, ammunition, more weapons. Um, Zelensky said specifically that they they would like uh, long range multiple launch rocket systems. Um, could we just dig into that? Why why exactly that those systems? And what do they do? And what advantage would that give the Ukrainians? Range and precision, basically. So these these multiple launch rocket systems, the high Mars that's in in um, service with the US and and a few other places. There's talk that 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 will be the next nature of equipment that is um that is sent the pentagon spokesman last night was very very clear that that they didn't know uh, or made made very good face of it very good fist of saying you didn't know what was going to be in the in the next presidential um aid package or the, the next package that biden would take um for for um for clearance through the through the u.s um but HIMARS is this uh oh god forgive me but it's a multiple launch rocket system um, big artillery system range in the sort of 180 miles, 300 k's, 
you can either fire fire a missile, uh, fire a bank of six missiles, um, or one very long range, uh, basically a, a ballistic missile. And so you're talking a huge range. And there was a, a real nervousness from the from the White House earlier on in the war that if Ukraine were gifted these 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 very sophisticated weapons, that they might they might take the fight to a much greater degree than we think they have done into Russia itself. We think some of these small raids, some of these small events that have been happening in Russia are probably either air assault raids or special forces raids. Or we're not entirely sure. But there was a nervousness that with these bigger weapons that Ukraine might take the fight into Russia, and that would be an escalatory step too far and would be seen as too provocative that the West had been had enabled them to been too enabling um and that was there was a worry that that would drag the west and nato in particular and the us into into direct confrontation with with russia um i think there's been i think there's been a willingness from the west to to help when we've seen what's happened in in country and we've seen the atrocities in bucha and elsewhere there's been a greater willingness to to help i think ukraine have also shown that they are not just going to go and grab this stuff and and start trying to um, bomb places in Russia, so that that also has has helped sort of mollify some concerns, and I, and I think the US are and the Western Western uh, contributing nations more broadly are coming around to the conclusion that that we can safely gift and train Ukrainians in the, in this equipment, these these natures of equipments, um, without them rushing off to try and bomb Belgorod and and goodness knows what else. Um, so I think in the next package we we're likely to see these multiple launch rocket systems um, gifted, and that would that will help to push back. That will target the Russian artillery that at the moment is pulverizing Ukrainian towns and villages, such that the the tanks and the infantry that, that follow up thereafter just are, are sort of walking behind this carpet of of artillery. Um, so if you're able to push that back, or or even better, sort of destroy those those artillery pieces um, in place. Then that that will assist in the defence and any any possible counteroffensive, but it, it's a question of range and and precision. You've got to be able to reach as far as far as you can, and you've got to be able to hit the thing you're after because um, they're fairly robust. These these uh, these pieces of equipment, so you only need a round landing just just tens of metres away is not going to have any effect on it. You've got to be very very close or or preferably a direct hit to really. Um, destroy these things so precision is the name of the game and precision at range is what you're really after brilliant well um mutas and dom can i have your final thoughts just looking ahead over the next few days over the weekend uh what should we be paying attention to yeah just as a sort of a broad thought um you know we we will have an editorial tomorrow morning um on the need for uh britain to do more um and the western world to do more to support Ukraine. This is a crunch moment um, and it's a time for renewed sort of commitment. But it is worrying that Russian leverage is increasing seemingly across the board, right? We're talking about how they've, um, they're now targeting a much smaller bit of territory in Ukraine uh, because of previous failures on the battlefield. Um, But they might be able to squeak out a, a small victory from that. But if you look at sort of the international picture, there was this sense at the start of the war that when Russia war, when Putin warned of starvation and, and economic calamity, there was a sense in the West that, that this stuff could be averted, you know, that it was an exaggeration by the Kremlin 
and the West could handle a war in Ukraine, you know, economically, we could sort of, uh, the, the, the reduction in exports of foodstuffs from Ukraine, you know, wheat and so on, can be sort of replaced by an increase in exports from countries like India, when in fact we've seen lots of food nationalism uh, from these countries and, and not much of an increase uh, to replace it. Um, you know, there was an assumption that um, a reduction in, in gas exports, you know, could be uh, mitigated by more LN, you know, LNG gas from America and so on. Now we're seeing just how difficult it is not just to build these LNG terminals in, and, and how long it takes to build these LNG terminals in countries like Germany, but a reluctance even in America for climate reasons and, and so on to export vast amounts of it. You know, there was there was an assumption that um, um, uh, any sort of oil shock could be mitigated. Well, oil prices are likely going to increase a hell of a lot over the coming months, uh, which increases revenues for Russia. Um, uh, and the consequences of this, well, you know, we're facing the prospect of, of famine across the third world in countries like Somalia. That leads to an increase in migration. You know, we're talking about figures like 100,000 uh, uh, asylum seekers and migrants crossing the English Channel every year. For the UK domestically, that is intolerable for our domestic politicians. It will lead to, a, uh, I can tell you, it will lead to a major backlash. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, inflation hitting um, 10% or so. Uh, and and the government having to uh, spend 15 plus 15 billion, you know, 30 billion pounds, just to keep families sort of keep keep families from freezing, frankly, in their homes. It, the situation is becoming intolerable for Western nations, um, and that increases Putin's leverage. So we've gone from Putin is losing and he has lost, and Ukraine shows just how strong and mighty the West is. To now, this is this is the real test, right? This is the real test, um, and whether or not we can withstand a few more months of this, uh, I is is very questionable. It's very questionable, you know. Just in terms of UK politics, uh, things are looking very shaky at the moment. Well, thank you very much, Mutas, for that view, that rather more sober view inside the, Brit- the mind of the British establishment. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like the final words before the weekend? Thank you. I'm afraid I, w- I will continue Mutaz's sobriety. I think this is the real test. He, he talks of a food and oil shock. Well, um, yes, we're, we're about to, I think, about to have a, a reality shock if events go as we, as we think and as we've predicted in the Severodonetsk pocket. Then, um, then yes, then we will, we will be facing the West, or many people in the West will be faced with, what? Oh, hang on. I thought this, I thought this was all over. I thought Ukraine were doing really well and, and it was going to be over by the, by the summer. I think this will be the moment where we find out really who's 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 in this for the long haul and um decisions over what is escalatory, what natures of equipment is is deemed too provocative, are deemed too provocative will come to the fore. We will then have a look at how much money and humanitarian aid countries are willing to offer for all the reasons Moot has just just outlined. Um and I think we will have a have a moment of of reckoning. Uh, President Zelensky, as I said earlier, he and his team have been sort of preparing domestic society, international community for, for this moment. But I think we are going to be invited to have a good look in the mirror and say, right, well, who are you? Are you up for this? This fight, this battle of values? 
And I think, as, as Mutaz says, we're about to enter the real test. On this podcast, we've been keen to explore the ways in which ordinary Ukrainians have responded to the conflict, discovering the ingenious and sometimes surprising ways in which people have put their talents and passions towards supporting their armed forces and humanitarian efforts. But for this next interview, I must confess a personal interest. My father's family live on the island of Isla in the west of Scotland. Right now, it's difficult to imagine anywhere further away from the war in Ukraine. Isla is famous for whiskey. Numerous distilleries dot the island. Their household names, Lefroig, Ardbeck, Lagavulin, Brookladdy, the list goes on. So when I saw in the Eluk, the local newspaper of the island, that a team of Ukrainians were launching two new whiskies at the upcoming festival, Feish Isla, I knew I had to get in touch. I wanted to understand how a special bottle of whiskey sold at the other end of Europe could impact Ukraine's war effort. So I spoke to Alexei Ostrovsky, head of whiskey at the Whiskey Corner restaurant in Kyiv. He explained the story of the special bottlings and took me through how the money spent in the West was used to buy equipment for the army fighting in Ukraine. My whiskey journey starts in 2006, I think. I tried Lagavulin in 16, and it was for me something unusual, which is not can be compared with other alcohol. So that's why medicine, oily, peaty, and these flavors for, for, for me was very interesting. And it was first whiskey. And then I tried to explore or find another similar pt whiskey and in a couple years i visit scotland and from this moment whiskey became my hobby i start collecting bottles maybe one of the first my my collection was dallas do or first octomore first releases of octomore so the Octomore is the Brookladdy, isn't it? Is that, is that right? The yeah, 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 yeah. So, but it, first Octomore, it was, I think, 2009. It was released in 2009. So it was the beginning. And then I, I was invited to join Whiskey Corner Restaurant as the head of whiskey tasks. <laughs> A different whiskey uh, tasks which connected with whiskey. And it was some of like dreams to make bottlings, which private bottlings. So that's why we start to find uh, opportunities how to learn how to do it. And from 2012 till this year, I think it was made around 40 different releases. Oh, wow. So during these 10 years, we learned uh, how to choose a cask, how to bottle how to label and how to create uh, whiskey. So let's let's talk about 2022. You're the head of whiskey at Whiskey Corner. It's a, a very, you know, it looks, I've seen the pictures, it looks absolutely beautiful house restaurant in, in central Kiev uh, with whiskey bottles all down one wall, lots of polished wood and everybody's in black ties. It looks very fancy. How did the war impact you and your business? Everything closed. And maybe just right now, after three months, the uh, Kiev, because uh, restaurant located in Kiev, came back to new life. It's it it can be named as previous life because it's a new life. And I think uh, most restaurants are still closed because uh, this 
time, I think not the restaurant time, but but small steps, small steps we trying to return to to life, and that's why, uh, as I told you in the, in the previous program, that I will also will bring my mom uh, back to Kiev because I think now it's more safer, and so I, I so I can bring her back to her flat, and and that's why. And that's, that's all because I, I don't know do do uh, know the time scale of what is going on in Kiev. But uh, in March it was very dangerous because Russian troops were around the Kiev. It's uh, they were very close. And it was uh, real war around Kiev. Mm. But now uh, now it's gone. So I don't know if our, our listeners might be able to hear this bird song in the background of your recording, which is very nice because you're speaking from <laughs> a, a village. I think you said south yeah. of Kiev. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can I cannot ask them to, uh, to be. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> to be. I bring my mom here because uh, it was on south. It was the opposite direction from Russian troops who come because they come from north. And from the uh, northwest, so we, we so I moved here. So so let's talk about the um, the the Feshila festival. So you've been bottling special whiskies to raise money for the Ukrainian armed forces. You know, we we spoke to a comedian who was doing um, stand up sets in Kiev, and he said, you know, comedy was was his weapon. Um, and so for you is is your skill with whiskey and your love of whiskey that's something you're 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 using to to support your army yeah it's true because you must understand that in march and now we're living in in our social area social news uh, local news local discussion and uh, one of the good sign which which i hear there from my wife from my friends that so uh, everyone must do some something that he can do good. So that's why. So I understand that. So we can do bottling. We understand it how to do, and it's funny. But thank you, thank you for COVID. We understand how to uh, do it remote, because two years before we we work with Scotland remote, and it works. So us or me on scotland physically so i can write emails i can organize bottling labeling any transport moving movements it was just one thing which worried worried we we have like a a little bit more than one month to to do everything to Mm. move the bottling hall to make labels to label then prepare to dispatch and deliver to germany so and so the whiskey was in Germany, I think, two days before festival. But but the key solution was that I asked a lot of people to help, and we take um, most faster delivery, which brings like in one day to Germany. And so I would like to say uh, thank you for all people in Scotland because they help us very much. It's interesting how. The the UK is obviously supporting Ukraine a lot in all sorts of different ways, 
and this is a, a new and a, a different aspect to that support is is through 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 whiskey and the power of whiskey yeah uh, yeah but it, it's uh, but i would like to say again big thank you for everyone because to it's to produce this two bottles you have to join and connect a lot of people and it's like it's really production mm. so that's why every people in the bottling home and print company and transport company tries to help and do best because uh, everyone understands that the importance of what we're doing and understands that we have to bring this whiskey to festival because uh, this is huge festival is around uh, 5000 guests there so we understand that so we it's one of the best opportunities to present our whiskey uh, and raise uh, money for charity. So, and, and where does the money go exactly? So it's the armed forces and other charities? or Yeah, so we uh, split armed for, for forces. Today ordered 100 it's gift certificates for children. It will be announced in this uh, Saturday. It's, it's like a, uh, it's a certificate for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a gift certificate from one uh, white Ukrainian chain of supermarkets, and we will uh, give these certificates to children, which it's children of some Ukrainian army men, or maybe uh, it's uh, orphans. Orphans, yeah, yeah. Or orphans. Saturday it will be presented for for these kids, and we will make uh, like a, a report on uh, Facebook. But before we we bought drones and uh, image and thermal imagers for army. Oh wow! It's it's expensive and but it, it was a lot of requests uh, for this for this uh, equipment. So so just so I understand this clearly, because I hadn't really realized that I'd have assumed that the money you raised would just sort of go to the army and you wouldn't necessarily know, you know, where it was spent or what was it spent on. But you're saying people. You've you've bottled this special whiskey. You're 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 presenting it at the Feishila Festival next week, and you've shown it off already in Germany. People buying that whiskey, the money goes to you. The army and the irregular army and the regular army have said, you know, we want drones, we want X Y Z equipment. Then that you spend that money on that equipment and hand it over. So there's a direct there's a direct link. You know exactly the money spent by somebody at the festival and where that goes wow yeah so i just trying to expl- explain you so mm. we have in general here two waves two two waves how to support two vectors so first of all it's it's actually it's uh, mentioned on the on the back label of our bottling so we have accounts and at national bank of ukraine two accounts one of these accounts is to support army and another account, it's to support uh, humanitarian organizations, to help civil people. And this one of the ways. So you just can transfer money. It's one of the decisions. Another decision is to help direct to some army battalions, some army groups, or some volunteers organization which already exist. And because, mm. because unfortunately, now we have a big war, but the small conflicts and small war began eight years ago. We had charity organization before, but but now it's different situation, and we have a full full 
full and the big war which is around i guess so sorry, uh, and, sorry. and uh, i can uh, explain you the, the difference of these two ways so uh, the first wave you just transfer money and the mm -hmm. uh, big organization trying uh, to organize split this money move this money to buy some equipment and uh, so it's also good but it's a long um, uh, story as a story which uh, which we explained you before to help direct to this organization or buy uh, this equipment it's it maybe maybe it's a small a small task but it's more effective according to time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because for example drones and image uh, um, uh, thermal imager I, I bought by myself so i bought by myself uh moved to to warehouse in poland and then same volunteers as me import this equipment to Ukraine and then I forward this to 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 men from army which I know know personal so so it's it's just to explain it it's not good or bad it's just two different ways which you mm. you, you can do it and you can help and your your whiskey will be doing both some of it will be going into the central pot. Some will be going on individual items. Yeah, what what's the atmosphere like amongst you and your friends? How, do do, do you, what what are your feelings about the war? It's strange feelings because I, I I don't wish anyone to get these feelings because your your mind changed continue changed and continue changed every day. So because you. First, you don't feel safe uh, at any place, but it was like in March. But now, in after two months, uh, you the situation the same because we don't have Russian troops here, but we have uh, missile attacks with danger every day, uh, and because uh, these warnings about missile attacks I receive on my phone, I think five times a day, every day. But uh, your mind is changed, so now it's. For, for you, it's not like so scare as one month before. So missile attacks be, became common in in the, and and Kiev not uh, Kiev not most the danger uh, city in Ukraine because if you compare to Mariupol, if you compare to eastern cities, this war border and the war activities is close closer. So. It's difficult to say uh, about feelings, so mm -hmm. because they change. But uh, we have just one feeling that uh, we have to continue protect our homes, continue fight, and continue continue be Ukrainians because it's our homes. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first thirty days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.